evidence and answers. Science is the study of the physical world. Science and the scientific method are valuable tools to learn about the world and the universe. Scientism is a philosophy that teaches science is the only method to attain reliable knowledge. Science is consistent with the Christian worldview, while the philosophy of scientism is not. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, Christian apologist Dr. Richard Howe explained the difference between science and scientism and the basic flaws of scientism. Now, let's conclude this message. Most of the time when you encounter a Christian who touts the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, they're Catholic. So an evangelical is going to have a sort of an allergy to that, right? But now they're starting to discover this scholastic tradition whether good or bad, endured well beyond the Protestant Reformation. It had nothing to do with Protestant-Catholic dispute. And the reasons it waned in Protestantism and not so much in Catholicism is itself an interesting philosophical question. So the classical philosopher would schematize it this way. Okay, natural sciences, those are first-order disciplines. But philosophy does two things. It does first-order things like act in potency, form in matter, Particular universal, substance accident, essence existence. Now, some of those categories and distinctions might mean something to you. If they do, then you need therapy, basically. That's the first thing. And you can get a shot for that, I think, now. It's been approved. Uh, no, these are classical philosophical categories from the ancient Greeks of Plato and Aristotle. So that would be a first-order discipline. That would be the aspects of reality that are the purview of the philosopher, just like the climate would be the purview of the meteorologist or the uh, celestial bodies would be the purview of the astronomer, that different disciplines have their thing to bring to the table. And so it's rare to find people that will acknowledge the fact that maybe philosophy actually has something to bring to the table into the conversation. And then it would also then concur that it can do this second-order discipline. So it actually does both in my estimation. Now, let's tie that back in to where we're going here and press on in our answer. What do we say about Daniel Dennett? Remember what he said, the only hope of ever demonstrating this is, in demonstrating it to a doubting world would be adopting the scientific method. Well, then the question is, it's similar. What is the argument offered to support this? In other words, what is your argument that the only hope of ever demonstrating that there's a miraculous cure for cancers is by this method? What's the argument for that? Well, he doesn't give an argument for it. Whatever that argument might be, what kind of argument would it have to be? Is it itself a scientific argument? No, it's a philosophical argument to make that. Whatever, again, it looks like in the details, well, what do you mean uh, by philosophical argument? Maybe that'll become clearer as we go along. What about John Shook? When he says he's defending science's exclusive right to explore and theorize about all reality, he's a philosopher, for goodness sake. He's like talking himself out of a job to go, well, then you basically need to shut up. If you're telling me you have nothing to say, is Shook's statement a part of reality? Well, of course it is. He just made that statement. It's in print. And Sarah, well, then what scientific method would possibly be used to prove that that statement is true? There isn't one because it's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. 
Even saying that doesn't mean that he's right or wrong. I'm just making a weaker claim that just the discussion about whether it's true or false is itself a philosophical statement, which means he becomes self-refuting to say there's no fact of reality that the scientist has exclusive rights and only has rights to and the rest of us can't. What about Dawkins? Many people, I would submit to you, have been able to believe that God is real merely by observing the wonders of creation. So we celebrate these verses. They've been mentioned more than once in this conference. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens declare the righteousness or his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Since the creation of the world, his invisible... Look how quirky the language is here. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Romans chapter 2 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law... These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show, and I always hear this verse misquoted. It doesn't say the law is written on the heart. It's the work of the law is written on the heart. If the law was written on the heart, it would evacuate his argument that the Gentiles are responsible before God for their sin, even though they weren't there at Mount Sinai, because you're able to know certain moral truths by virtue of your natural human faculties of reason. And that's true of all human beings, this, I think Paul is arguing. So it doesn't matter. They can say, well, we didn't, know, we didn't know we weren't supposed to murder. We weren't there with Moses, so how could we get in trouble? No. What it is that the law is aiming towards, that deeds that the law is seeking towards, those moral goods are written on the heart. So we see God revealed not only in the heavens, but also in the heart. And then Paul says in Acts 14, we also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all things in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. How is he revealing himself? In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So God's providential superintendence of the human race on planet Earth is a testimony of the existence and goodness of God. It's echoing the sentiment from Psalm 104. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's hearts. So my suggestion at this point then is, best case scenario, even in a fallen world, people should be able to see a starry sky and know there's a God, or see God's providential superintendence and throughout history and know there's a God. Or for that matter, look at the complexities of the biological organisms and know that there's a God. But again, as self-serving as it might seem for a philosopher to say this, as more toxic philosophical voices have fogged the conversation throughout history, the need of, arises to appeal to deeper issues in philosophy. So I'm not claim, claiming exclusive rights. I'm just trying to carve out a spot at the table as a philosopher. It's pretty easy to see the spot at the table that the scientist has. And I celebrate their voice at the table like what Dr. Ross is doing to make the case for Christ by his knowledge of science. And I love that. I'm glad that he's there doing that. So I'm trying to do the same thing for the philosopher. So that brings me to Richard Dawkins. Notice the two quotes in juxtaposition. Because he's actually saying the same thing, just in two different ways. This isn't a change of view. This is the same thing. But there's a certain way that he worded it that I think gives me an opportunity to expose a fallacy here. Remember on the blind watchmaker, he talks about whether God exists as a definite question of fact. In the context, Bishop Montefiore was a 
presumably an Anglican bishop who wasn't a postmodernist. Some of you know what postmodern relativism is. So he finally met an Anglican or a church leader who finally met one who wasn't a relativist, who thought, look, there either is a God or there isn't a God. It's a question of fact. And Dawkins celebrated that. He's like, hallelujah. Well, he didn't say hallelujah. He would have said something else, whatever the atheist equivalent of hallelujah. Maybe that's what he said. I don't know what it would be. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask an atheist. So he's, he's excited that this religious leader recognized that there, it either true there's a God or it's false that there's a God. But when he talks about it later on in The God Delusion, and he says the presence or absence of a creative superintelligence is unequivocally a scientific question, I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I agree with you that it is a factual question, but why should I agree that it's a scientific question? Because you can't just say that and without argument. You've got to give some argument, which ironically the only argument he could do, give would be a philosophical argument for that uh, in some sense if, if it deals with it in enough detail. But he doesn't give any argument for that. He just imperializes over the question. He just says, science is the only way to know these kind of truths. And since he, he obviously you know, doesn't measure up to the standards of the material world that we're able to measure and observe, then he, he doesn't exist. That's why Dawkins thinks his flying spaghetti monster, some of you are familiar with that, saying, well, how do you know it's the God of the Bible that created? Maybe it's the flying spaghetti monster. And he comes up with this silly kind of thing. That's why he thinks that's, that's an actual adult response. It's because he thinks that all he's offering, the, everything he's offering the flying spaghetti monster can do everything explanatorily that your God of the Bible can without all of the baggage that he would hate with it, like being morally accountable for his soul, right? So, and I go, that's why he could do that because he's totally o- oblivious to the kind of God that Christians have been defending for 2,000 years. He's basically unacquainted with that conversation. It's really 2,500 years if you want to make it even beyond the Christian God in terms of what these arguments are. I debated Dan Barker uh, the last time I debated him on our campus. He's heard a million times all the arguments we all know of fine-tuning and the Kalam and the, you know, irreducible complexity or whatever. And so he has his canned responses every time. And, and so I thought, well, when I debate him, I don't want this to just be one version 612, verse 612 of the same song. I'll get up and give my arguments. He'll come up with his canned response, and then I'll give my response to that. He'll give his response to that, and everybody goes home. Because I felt like everybody's heard this song over and over and over again. Now, some people may not have heard it, and so it's good for them to hear it the first time for sure. I thought, you know what, I'm a philosopher, I'm not a scientist anyway, so rather than giving the scientific evidence, I'm going to give a philosophical argument. Because I was going to try to prove to this audience that this philosophical question about whether God exists or not is something that he is absolutely ignorant about how that conversation has gone on for 2,500 years. Now, this doesn't prove there's a God. It just means he's not conscientiously interacted with the best arguments historically that the philosophers have been given. Unfortunately, (laughs) you know, most of my audience didn't traffic in the philosophical technicalities. I mean, you got 15 minutes to give an argument, right? So a lot of people real upset with me. My wife keeps getting on to me because I go, you know, I just did a, such a terrible job. And she's like, no, don't say that. I go, well, people were so upset. But after that, I thought, you know what, I'm glad I did that because I did nothing else. I exposed, hopefully, the people that are paying close attention that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, maybe atheism is true, but if it is true, it has nothing to do with anything Dan Barker's ever argued because his arguments don't really rise to the level of a serious, conscientious, adult 
scholarly, intellectual conversation about the issue. But at any rate, because I think it's ultimately philosophical. How about Marsha McNutt? Well, the same kind of response. Science is the method. Well, presumably, she believes what she says. So what scientific method did she use to decide whether this belief has a basis in the laws of, of nature or not? And furthermore, exactly what laws of nature could you possibly use to be the basis of that statement? Now, if she said, oh, I didn't use the laws of nature to decide this. I used philosophy to do that. I go, okay, good. That's all I'm asking. To, to realize that's a philosophical statement. Where's your philosophical argument? But from everything I know about her, which is not a whole lot, uh, she wouldn't say that. She would just dismiss any question that would need a philosophical argument to defend, like question of God, question of miracles, questions of ethics and morality and things of that nature. So I think her statement then in that case becomes a self-refuting uh, statement. What about Peter Atkins? Well, think about this one. Now, this is, I want to take a there's something subtle here that I want to make sure I'm clear about. Remember, he says, I believe that anything that has been reported reliably, anything, can be interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science. Now, this is a rhetorical question, but I'm asking rhetorically, can Atkins' statement, quote, be interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science? Now, think about that. Can that statement be interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science? And I, I suspect that you're expecting me to say, well, no, it can't. It's philosophical, blah, blah, blah. No. I don't think that's the right question to ask. Because I think you could take anything you want and interpret it with any framework that you decide, if you want to do that. You could say, well, is abortion good or bad? I don't know. Let's interpret it within the framework of Lord of the Rings. Okay. Okay. If you want to do that, I'm not sure what that would look like. All right, let's do it in, in the categories of lost in space or whatever your favorite fictional story, story or any other discipline. You could always frame any question, I presume, in the category of any framework you want. The question to ask is, to me, this, can Atkins' statement be correctly interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science? And I think the answer to that is absolutely not, because it's a philosophical statement. It's not a scientific statement. Now, he's saying this as a scientist, so he thinks he's, he's off the hook. Stephen Hawking, Leonard Malad now, and their statement that philosophy is dead, I think it was William Lane Craig that quipped, he said, I think they're the philosophy professors at Cambridge University would be uh, startled to learn that Stephen Hawking said their, their discipline's all dead and you don't need it anymore. I think it's more, and I don't know how much of this is Stephen talking, and Hugh could fill us in on this because he's interacted with these scientists. I don't know which one of these. I think he's already hinted to me in some conversation we had. It's really now more than anything else. Does that sound fair? Uh, that that sort of militant atheism are coming through. So you can imagine two guys sitting there talking, and one of them says, well, uh, what good is philosophy? He said, I don't know. I mean, what good is science? Well, science, uh, ah, now you're doing philosophy. And you could put other disciplines in this. I saw a great meme, and it's uh, Bruce Banner and Thor sitting there talking. And uh, somebody put the little bubble, and Bruce Banner's like, hey, you don't really need theology. You just need Jesus. And Thor goes, well, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. And you're like, ah, now you're doing theology. You know, the very theology you think you didn't need, it, but instead needed Jesus, is not even accessible, that, that Jesus is not accessible without doing theology. And other questions are not accessible without doing philosophy, at least if you're going to defend it to some extent. So the overall, in my judgment, mistake that is being made and procedural error that these scientismists are doing is a fallacy known as the selection effect. It goes by other names as well. 
If you drag a net through the water of the ocean in order to gather data about relative sizes of the marine life, invariably any life that is either too small or too large will not be caught in the net, right? So in other words, there's a selection that the net imposes on the data. And if the analysis of the data is something that only survives the net, it's not going to tell you the truth about the marine life as a whole in the ocean. So by uh, parallel, if you will, we see this fallacy often when physicalists, these would be people that more or less think that reality is confined only to the physical, completely miss the evidence for God because they are being scandalized by their own presuppositions. They're just making these assumptions, which they may not even know that they have. So sometimes it's, tried to, it's good to try to jar them of that. Historically, I think the easiest or most direct way to jar someone locked in that kind of uh, blindness are ethical issues because that resonates so close to our hearts when we start dealing with, well, what do you think then, okay, so racism is okay in your book? Well, no. Okay, well, what about sexism? No, pick whatever. It's getting harder and harder to pick things that people would actually have a moral aversion to. Have you noticed that? Because now you can go, well, if you're true, if you're right, we might as well all be Hitler. And they go, and your point is? It's like, okay, I thought we didn't all want to be Hitler, so now I've got to pick somebody worse than Hitler, you know, to, to do that. Maybe Donald Trump or whoever would be in their mind that they would just loathe or whatever. Uh, but usually moral issues, I think, are pretty quick to cut to the heart. So we see the failure of, I would argue, this scientism. Well, we've seen that one of the fundamental mistakes of scientism is failure to distinguish questions that are scientific from questions that are philosophical. And the methods of science, as that term is commonly used today, are limited in their ability to plunge the depths of the nature of reality. So you can see, when Dr. Ross gives his arguments, how he is able to extrapolate from scientific data to these conclusions about things which are themselves immaterial, like questions about God's existence, intelligence, and these kind of things. We've already seen it in the conference in terms of the arguments that he's been making. So contemporary science often seeks to give answers along the contours and categories of mathematics, very often. But on the occasion of our encounter with the sensible world around us, I submit to you, the human intellect is able to know truths that are beyond the physical, which is to say, metaphysical truths. Let me give you some examples without explanation. This is just to tease you to go, wow, I'd like to explore some of those. Go to ses.edu. You can sign up for a classical philosophy class next time it cycles or, or many of the other classes that we offer at the seminary and explore some of these things from a classical philosophical perspective, which is relatively rare in evangelical circles. Examples would be the notion of teleology, the idea that things have directedness, that an acorn always becomes an oak tree. It doesn't sometimes become a whale and such, that something's directing it, and it directs it because it has a certain nature, that there's a difference between being an oak tree and a zygote of a human being. And that nature is what causes it to have constraints as to what it could possibly be and do. It could dissolve if it was subjected to an acid, or it could combust if it was subjected to a flame, or it could malfunction if it was subjected to injury or disease or malnourishment, or it could flourish if it was left to its own devices as the way it's supposed to. And the classical argument in Christianity is, and natures come from God. God is the creator of natures. Well, what is a nature? It's a philosophical category. I'll give you one example, and this will be the only one I'll try to resist the temptation to explore, but since I've got about seven more minutes here, why this matters. You think of the Nuremberg trials, okay? We're in the vicinity of Pearl Harbor. We all resonate as Americans with the Second World War. I have to change my examples when I'm overseas 
because some, some countries don't resonate with the Second World War as much as, as the U.S. And, and other countries and the Allied forces did. So during the Nuremberg trials, the justices of the trials were from the Soviet Union, France, the U.K., and the United States. But the defendants in the trial weren't citizens of the, those four nations. So they couldn't be tried on the basis of the laws of the Soviet Union, France, the U.K., and the United States because they weren't citizens. But they also couldn't be tried on the basis of German law because they didn't break any German laws. In the late 30s, Hitler was already beginning and the Germans were already beginning to sculpt the German laws and constitution such that they would be able to uh, address the uh, final solution to the Jewish question, as it was called euphemistically. So how did they indict him? They couldn't indict him on the basis of the laws of the justices. They couldn't indict him on the basis of the laws of Germany. So how did they indict him? They used a phrase, among others, they used a phrase, it's not the first time it was used in jurisprudence, but I think it was the time that put this phrase on everybody's lips from that point forward, is that they were accused of committing crimes against humanity. Now, just think to yourself, well, what is a humanity? What is a humanity? I mean, I'm not a humanity, I'm a human, but I'm not a humanity. Ask yourself, is humanity real in some sense of the term real or not. If you say that it's not real in any sense of the term real, then how could you commit a crime against it if it's not even real? If you say it is real in some sense of the term real, that there's something real about humanity in distinction from individual humans, if you say it is real in some sense of the term, then I submit to you, you're thinking about what is it exactly like is going to fall somewhere along the line of the thinking of Plato or somewhere along the line of the thinking of Aristotle. Now, there are other voices that come into the conversation later in Western intellectual history, but these two are shadows that have cast now for 2,500 years over Western civilization and such. And I would argue as a classical philosopher that it is real. It's called philosophical realism. And I would try to explain what, what I think is real about it. It's what the theologians, by the way, call the soul. That your, what is your nature in you, your human nature that makes you a human, theologically is what the uh, theologians call the soul. And the philosophers call the form or the essence and stuff. Just to give you one example of the cash value, all of a sudden why this stuff seemingly matters. The others, and then without explanation, so we can just end this. You've got Aristotle's four causes, efficient, formal, final, and material. The only one of those four that really rises to prominence in today's conversation is efficient. But the others, I think, are very relevant. The distinction between substance and accident. The distinction between the universal and the particular. Uh, the distinction between form and matter. These are philosophical categories. The distinction between act and potency. And the distinction between essence and existence. Now, the last point is this. You can take all of these, and with these metaphysical truths, the classical philosopher that is, the Thomas, like me, can demonstrate not only the existence of God, but all of the superlative classical attributes of God. They all cascade inexorably from a strategic application of these few categories. In my philosophy course, I changed the way that I teach it recently, and I start out with, and I'm not going to do it here, but just to tell you this is, I start out with a thought experiment about a, a, a person, a man or woman, out camping with his dog. And just the things that this guy observes at, at camping, the dog, the color of the dog, the position of the dog, 
the heat of the campfire, the uh, imagining the, the growth cycle of the trees around them. And I try to strategically show how every one of those just normal, common sense observation of the sensible world, that is the world knowable by the senses, can give rise to metaphysical truths, the strategic arrangement of which proves the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's been thick throughout Western history and only recently has begun to really wane, particularly in uh, Protestant and now dominant secular uh, society. So if you're interested in that, talk to me. We can bring some questions up during the Q&A. So anyway, God bless. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran.